Uh, Alright, so have Hosea out in front of you. And um, it's useful, of course, to have the outline in front of you as well. That often tells you how far I've got to go. So that's a pretty good thing, isn't it? Excellent. Alright. Well, shall we pray? And then we, uh, we'll have a look at this, this passage together. Father, thank you for today. Thank you that we can come together. Uh, we, we pray that you'd open our hearts and minds as we, we look into your word and, Lord, that you'd speak to us and that we can put, Jesus, your words into practice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to begin by telling you a story. So I want you to kick back, relax, maybe put your feet up. That's it, perfect. There we go. If you want to move a chair around, you can do that. Here's the start of the story. In the beginning, God made the world. <laughs> it's a long story. No, we're going we're gonna to pick and choose a little bit on the way through this story. Like, it, it was perfect. God made the world and he made humanity to enjoy, to enjoy the world. We would be his people. He made us to love him. He made us to love each other. And he made us to love the planet. But we rejected God's love. We told God we'd rather do things our way than God's way. Even though he created us, and we rejected him. We were unfaithful to him. And as a result, the world was no longer perfect. We made a mess of our relationship with God and we made a mess of our relationships with each other. And so we came under God's judgment. But God didn't give up on us. He began a plan to renew the world with a renewed people through a man named Abram. We're going to hear some really weird names today. I'm warning you now, you've already heard a few. Nick pronounced them really well too. So through him, God, was, God promised a people who would be blessed. Abram even changed his name to Abraham, which means the father of many. And God promised that Abraham's family would be like sand on the seashore. There would be that many of them. And this is exactly what happened. Abraham had a son called Isaac. Isaac had a son, a son called Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons became 12 tribes and their descendants of a nation called Israel. Now one year... To escape famine, Jacob's family ended up in Egypt. It was there, really, the 12 tribes, Jacob's sons, became a nation. Now, at first, they were welcomed in Egypt. But soon, the Pharaoh sort of started getting threatened by them because they were increasing in number. So what he did, he made them slaves. But they cried out to God, and God heard them, and God had mercy on them. And he rescued them out of Egypt through a man called Moses. Through Moses, God told the people, you will be my people and I will be your God. God gave Israel the rich and beautiful land of Canaan. Israel's greatest king was King David, the second king of Israel. He brought peace and prosperity to this new nation. His son Solomon was the third king. He was known for his wisdom. Queens would come and visit him because he was so wise, but he made two tragic errors. He married foreign wives, and with that came their foreign gods, and he followed those foreign gods. Solomon even made the people slaves again 
to build his magnificent buildings. Solomon's son was Rehoboam. He was the next king, but he also enslaved the people. And by the year 922 BC, under the leadership of King Jeroboam, Israel divided into two. Ten tribes in the north, they kept the name Israel. The capital was Samaria. You also might hear Israel get called, called Ephraim when we go through Hosea. The south, the two remaining tribes, stayed in the south. They, they were called Judah and they remained under King David's dynasty. Jeroboam got this new northern nation of Israel off to a bad start. See, what he made them do, he, he made the people, he wouldn't allow them, the people, to cross the border back into Judah and worship like they wanted to in Jerusalem. You can see it's a, across the border there. Instead, he made two idols, one up in Dan and one down in Bethel. And he said, you've got to worship those idols there. And do you know what those idols were? Those idols were golden calves. Same golden calves that the people, uh, the people worshipped against God's wishes back just following their rescue out of Egypt. Golden calves. These, these idols would be the focus of Israelite worship. Now the south, you see there Judah, they did a little better and they continued to be ruled by the descendants of King David. Back in the north though, it was coup after coup. Bloodshed brought about all five kings following King Jeroboam. One after the other, they knifed each other. That was how you won the throne. You knifed the next guy. Can you imagine? Watch your back. They're going to knife you. None of them, though, did anything to stop the worshipping of idols. Eventually, King Omri came to the throne and he established his kingdom in the north in 880 BC after years of civil war. But his time was characterised by cruelty and wickedness towards God and his people. He did awful things. You read about him in 1 Kings. Ahab was his next son. Now, you remember Ahab? Ahab was the guy that Elijah spoke against in 1 Kings uh, that we'd looked at in our series before. Ahab was known for his wickedness and his wife. (laughs) We'll talk about his wife in a moment. But Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord, uh, one king says, than Omri did. That that seems incredible if you look at Omri. But he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now one of Ahab's palaces was in Jezreel. It was there that he had his neighbour Naboth killed so he could take his vineyard. Remember that story? Awful story. Had him killed, knifed, bloodshed again just so he could have some more wine out of this nice vineyard. Ahab's wife, well, yes, she was a real piece of work. Her name was Jezebel. Together, they made Israel the centre for idolatry and the worship of the Baals, the Canaanite gods. Elijah and Elisha were the prophets that spoke against them. But Ahab's kingdom did not last. Surprise, surprise. And soon... Back at Jezreel, remember that name, Ahab's kingdom and his family, Omri's descendants, would be brought down. Absolute carnage and bloodshed once again. Jehu became the next king of Israel. Jehu, his name is. In those days, when you thought of Jezreel, well, you thought of bloodshed. That's what came into your head. But even though God used Jehu to bring down the evil king Ahab, 
Jehu and his four sons who succeeded him in Israel ended up being no better than Ahab, no better than Omri. Jehu removed Baal worship, but replaced it with worship of other gods, other idols made of stone and wood and so on. And it wasn't long before the Baals made a comeback anyway, and they were back on the scene. Jehu's great-grandson is a guy called Jeroboam, Jeroboam II. He ruled Israel for 40 years. Unheard of in those times. 40 years. So this is a time of great prosperity and great wealth. If you wanted it, you got it in Israel at the time. It was a golden age. Peace, prosperity, life was rosy. But then God called a man named Hosea. Hosea 1 verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Biri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reigns of Jeroboam the second, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. So there we have it. That's the context. That's the, the political and historical context of where we find ourselves in Hosea. 8th century BC Israel, northern kingdom. Peace and prosperity. The problem is the peace and prosperity had led to spiritual complacency. You know what I mean? Spiritual adultery. And it was a time that was coming to a close. A great threat was building in the north. We'll see it up in a moment. Judgment was coming. Assyria was coming. But the real problem for Israel wasn't really Assyria. The real problem was the spiritual state of Israel. Israel's marriage to God. The real problem was their infidelity. Infidelity means their unfaithfulness. Uh, their unfaithfulness to God. So Hosea 1 verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land, that's Israel, is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. Now listen carefully to this. The message to Hosea was as terrible and gut-wrenching as the message through Hosea. You see that? Go take for yourself an unfaithful wife. The message through to Hosea was judgment is coming. Watch out, turn back to the Lord. See, it, it's the people you love who can hurt you the most. Isn't that true? And that's true, isn't it? See, we can trace the degree of potential pain along a scale. Right? Bear with me for a minute. So over here, we've got the, on this side, is the quick rejection of a stranger. Yeah, yeah, a bit upsetting. It's not too bad, really. You get over it. You, know, you hardly sort of notice it, really. And then along the scale, a bit more, to an argument with a friend. It gets a bit more real. It, it hurts. And then along the scale again, to the ache and the pain of parent-child hostility, um, even separation. And then the most wounding of all, the betrayal of a marriage. Adultery, let's just say. Nothing short of the last two of these could really have conveyed to Hosea or to us how much God loves us. Do you hear that? 
Nothing short of those two. See, even, even then, words may not have done it justice. It needed acting out a real-life meta- metaphor. Go and take for yourself, the Lord said to Hosea, a, a wife of unfaithfulness. Now, I know we're, some of us are young here, but I think we're, we're okay with this. The real word, that, 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 a more literal translation, it's an awful word, but three times, in fact, four times, but it's, it's translated three times in, um, in, say, an ESV Bible. Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom. <laughs> we don't usually word that, use that word. Don't ever call someone that. It's an awful thing to say to someone. But that's what it is. It's meant to be shocking. Go take for yourself a wife of unfaithfulness, of, of, of whoredom, who sleeps around. Go take for yourself one of those wives. Go take for yourself a wife who lies who cannot be trusted. For Israel is guilty of such unfaithfulness in rejecting the Lord. It's meant to be shocking. Let's watch this uh, short video. We good for that? Oh, the shake of the head. Can you get it quickly set up for me? In the morning one, David. Go the morning one. It's, it's worth watching. Uh, while Carla's getting it set up, um, it, it is fairly shocking. Um, but it's great. Thanks, Al.
it's uh, it is it. I, I can't help but have an emotional response to it. To be honest, it's like that. Uh, pretty amazing. The thing about it, though, uh, this this is not just Israel's story, is it? See, it's our story too. We too have been unfaithful to God. In response to God's loving kindness, we have prostituted ourselves to other gods, to money, popularity, uh, prosperity, to family, to comfort. We've sold ourselves and slept with the world that God gave us. So our question as we read Hosea is what will God do about our unfaithfulness? What's God going to do about it? Well, let's go back to Hosea 1. Verse 2 tells us that Hosea's obedience is in stark contrast to Israel's. See what it does? God says, go, take for yourself. And Hosea responded to God's word immediately by doing just that. And he married Goma. They had a son soon after uh, with two or more following. Notice too that although the father is mentioned... Hosea is mentioned the first son. He's not mentioned as the father of the second and third child. We're not sure who the father is. All three children would tell of, God, of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. Children of unfaithfulness uh, of whoredom. <laughs> so son number one was, was Jezreel. Call, verse 4, call him Jezreel because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. So whether it was Ahab and Naboth's vineyard or even Jezebel or whether it was Jehu's excessive cruelty, Jezreel, the place, was bloodshed central. Now, in American political history, if you follow a bit of American politics, uh, Watergate. Watergate would have to be one of the most well-known scandals. So, for the youngsters, <coughs> if you haven't heard of Watergate, it went something like this. Okay? So, President Nixon, uh, 1974, had to resign after being found guilty, and he admitted it as well, found guilty of sending out his Republican campaign managers let's just call them spies, to the Watergate Hotel where the Democratic uh, manager's campaign office was to break in and get some little secrets. It went something like that, is that right? Old, you know, it's a give or take, that sort of idea. Um, that was the Watergate scandal, okay? Now, whenever there's a scandal, the media, what they tend to do is put gate at the end of everything. Gate, all right? So there's a scandal, you, you add, it's called a suffix, I think it is, is that right, English people? I don't know, no one, yep, yep, Rod's donning, so I go with Rod, good on you, Rod. Um, so in the UK, here's an example, UK media. In the UK, back when a guy called Gordon Brown was the PM, is a while back now, he, he refused to tell the media what his favourite biscuit was. True story. So what was it called? Biscuit Biscuitgate. <laughs> <laughs> Biscuit gate, controversy, scandal. You might remember recently when uh, Nelson Mandela died, he had a big funeral in a stadium, uh, American President Obama got together with a Danish PM and they took a selfie. It got spread around social media and the news, 
What do the Americans call that? They call it selfie gate. That's the sort of thing, it, it gets annoying, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, I'm thankful that Australian media doesn't do it so much, but American and British media tend to have grab hold of it. There might be more examples as well. But the point is that gate has become synonymous, and meaning the same thing, uh, to scandal. So in Israel's history, Jezreel became synonymous with bloodshed. Bloodshed, murder, you name it, it was all there. Jezreel became synonymous with bloodshed. So to call your child Jezreel was like calling your child bloodshed, was like calling your child Auschwitz, okay, where they killed millions of Jews in the Second World War uh, um, under Hitler, or Hiroshima, nuclear bomb, or ISIS. It'd be the same sort of thing. So here's my youngest. Here he is. Come here, bloodshed. Come, mate, over you come. Say hello to my, my friend Graham here. Here's, here's bloodshed. Back to verse 4 and 5. A day was coming when Israel would fall because of such bloodshed and wickedness. Israel's bow. Now, a bow would be a symbol of military might in those days. But here, the bow would be broken. Well, what about child number two? Child number two was given the name Lo-Rahama, meaning unloved. Verse 6, halfway through, For God will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should forgive... Sorry, for God will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should forgive... That I, that, uh, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show them love to the house of Judah, and I will save them, not by bow or sword or battle, or by horses or horsemen, but by the Lord their God. So imagine for a moment the scene at the local public school. Okay, the kids are all running out of the gate. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. They're finished. Ah, there she is. There's unloved. There's unloved. Every time her name is called, they declare this beautiful little girl unloved. Israel would receive no mercy, no compassion. Judah is different though. Judah will be saved. God will save Judah, not by military hardware. No, no, no. What protected Judah and friends, what protects us is not our power or wealth or our abilities. It's the mercy of God. Well, verse 8, after she had weaned Lorahama, Gomer had another son. And again, notice that Hosea is not mentioned as a father. Verse 9, Then the Lord God said, Call him Loami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. So, following the birth of Hosea, you can picture the scene again. It's very exciting times. Uh, Hosea takes his second son, his youngest, in his arms, and he walks out of the hospital, or so to speak, and he shows his friend, Oh, here he is. Here, here's, here's, this is not my boy. Here's not my boy. This is not my boy. In the playground as he grows up, Hosea, dad, would point to him and say, hey, there's not my son. Not my son. Here he is over there. He's playing on the swings. Not my son. <laughs> Life might have been tough for Lorahama, but I tell you, imagine what it felt like to be called not my boy, not my son. <laughs> well, verse 9, the nation of Israel are no longer God's people. They are no longer, God is no longer their God. God's promises to Moses all those years back have been reversed on Israel. 
they are left alone to the pagan gods they have, desire, desire, uh, they have uh, desired. Imagine for a moment then a, a child walking down the park here, it could happen any afternoon at Robertson of course, and uh, walking with their, their, a child walking with their father and they are approached by an angry snarling dog. <laughs> Imagine her turning around to find her father running away. Imagine him saying, running away, you're not my child. I'm not your father. You're on your own. <laughs> running away. Well, this is exactly what happened to Israel. A short time later, the Assyrian army, the great strength of that time, in 722 BC, came crashing down on the kingdom of Israel, wiped it off the map, took it off the pages of history. That's it, gone. Samaria was completely destroyed. Now, we make a few jokes about the names, but it's all, it's all pretty depressing, really. Don't you think? I, I, it's all pretty miserable. M- miserable for this family and miserable for God. It's hardly a picture of a, a perfect family and marriage. In fact, it's quite the opposite. God wanted to shake Israel, shake and say to them, wake up, shake them out of their infidelity, their unfaithfulness, their cheating before it was too late. Assyria was coming. This was their last warning. He could have warned Israel like uh, through Hosea's preaching, a bit like Elijah or Moses or, or Elisha. The, 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 those are the names, those are the prophets. But he went further. The message embodied in the lives of these and the names of these kids told them to return before it's too late because judgment was coming. So, verse 3 in our outline there, was all the... What, was all this negativity the end of God's promises? What's going to happen now? God's plan of salvation that we read before, will God give up on his people? Well, no, God will keep his promises. He is faithful. Now, it's not until the New Testament when we, when we read of God's promises being fulfilled fully. But look at these last verses in verses 10 to chapter 2, verse 1. They're really a summary of God's promises. They're hope in the midst of judgment. In one sense, they're a great reversal of what we've just read. Note the first word in verse 10. Look at it. Yet, yet, this is what God will do. Verse 10, restoration for his people, echoing the promises made to Abraham, like sand on the seashore. God hadn't given up on on his people. In fact, God will renew his covenant. We know the New Testament tells us that that's through the Lord Jesus. His people will once more be called sons and children of the living God reconciliation between all of God's people, both Israel in the north and Judah in the south. All of God's people reunited, one nation, one king, one head. It's not hard to guess who that king might be. A significant family, God their father, Jew and Gentile, Gentile means non-Jew, Jew and Gentile together, as Paul says in Romans 9, which was read for us earlier, quoting Hosea 2 verse 1 and later chapter 2 verse 21. I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call them, I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in verse 11, uh, back to Hosea 1, they will come up out of or go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. See, Jezreel didn't really mean bloodshed. Uh, sorry, Jezreel, uh, it didn't really mean bloodshed. That's, a, that's just what it became known for. It actually means God plants. Isn't that incredible? I love this bit. God plants. God will plant his people in the land and they will flourish. That's God's promise to us. 
Like uh, in Ezekiel 37, there's a picture of dry bones giving life. See, here's a picture of the promise of resurrection, of which the New Testament tells us Jesus will be the first fruits of a great harvest. God is the living God, verse 10 tells us, the source of life, new life for God's people. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and life to the full. Let's finish up, tie some things together. So just like he did to Israel through the prophet Hosea, God actually invites us to come back to him, to be part of a most significant family where God is our loving Heavenly Father and you are his child. Now, some of you have or have had wonderful fathers. Two of you have got the most amazing father in the world uh, <laughs> who have protected you who have disciplined you, who have played with you. Now think of all that is good about your father and then think, think what God is like. See, that is what God is like to you. In fact, only better, more loving, more protecting, more wise in his discipline. Now but some of you too have had or have bad fathers who... who who left you or were absent or even cruel and maybe even abusive. God is the father you always wished you had. Jesus tells a well-known story. It's the parable of the lost son, Luke 15. It's actually really about a parable of a forgiving father. Right at the end, and I hope to... I'm sorry to give you a spoiler here, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> right at the end, the, this loving father sees his returning son who was lost He's gone off the rails completely. And he sees him in the, in the distance, the words are, and he runs to him. Now, now, a side point here. See, men in those cultures, in Arabic cultures and Middle Eastern cultures, they do not run. Men do not run. They don't rush. But here, this man runs. He runs to his son, who has come back. With open arms, it says. This is how God welcomes us so as you come to God the Father through the Lord Jesus know this know that you are not a Jezreel or a Lorahama or a Loami but you have received mercy and you are loved you are loved and a child of God that's pretty good <laughs> let me pray <clears throat> Father, we thank you for today, we thank you for tonight. Thank you, Lord, that you've called us together. Um, Lord, we pray tonight as we, we think about your word to us. We pray that we won't be like those Israelites who just went off on their own, ignored you, rejected you. We pray tonight be a night we actually come back to you. We come back to you and receive the mercy you have given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we, uh, we, we, we give our lives to you and we thank you for that. Uh, Father, we pray that we won't, as we do that, we know that we are loved by you. Uh, we, we are called by you and we have received mercy because of Jesus. So, Father, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.